0: Recovery Elevator, episode three hundred and thirty
1: two. I mean, one of the biggest things I think that kept me drinking for as long as I did is like that terrible cycle of shame, right, that you have with alcohol or any drug. is like I, I do the thing I drink, I do something stupid, I embarrass myself. Oh, my God, I can't face myself. Shameful. You end up drinking again because you just can't deal with your feelings.
2: The awakening is a shift in consciousness in which things Life isn't as serious as my mind makes it out to be.
0: Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, it is great to be back here with you guys. On today's podcast, we've got Brett. She's 27 years old, lives in San Francisco, and she took her last drink on January 2nd, 2020. Now, if you love our intro and outro music, then check out the artist DJ NYE on Spotify. And that link is in the show notes. Also in the show notes are links to download for free our intro and outro music. That's with my voice sampling and Eckhart Tolle's voice samplings as well. Thank you AF rockstar Liz for doing the show notes. So today is Monday, June 28th. This Thursday, July 1st is the start date of our intensive 13 session course for the month of July. We meet three times per week, Monday, Thursday, and Sunday. Mondays and Thursdays are classroom style format with intimate breakout rooms and Sundays are for guest speakers, Q and A's, and we've got an AF beverage workshop hosted by Kate, episode 315. So we polled previous course participants and 72% of them who filled out the survey monkey remained alcohol free for the duration of our last course. How cool is that? You'll have course assignments and daily discussion prompts in your WhatsApp groups. This course is all about connection and having fun. Go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash restore or click the link in the show notes, thank you again Liz, to sign up and for more information. You guys, don't forget that land tortoises are the longest living animals on the planet and that third eye blind is still the best band of the world. One of those is a fact, the other is opinion, but they're both for the most part, undebatable. Okay, let's get started. I'm going to cover two things today. Number one, the importance of purposefully adding more joy into your life. And number two, recently while traveling, I came across the world's most vicious sports mascot ever. In fact, I still get goosebumps when I think of the deadly mascot. Okay, let's talk about joy. And this may seem like common sense, but it's not because so many of us postpone, skip, or have forgotten about joy altogether, like the how-to part, how to experience joy, how to have fun. So right about now seems like a good time to insert a quote about joy. Joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. That's from Henry Nguyen. Okay, so let's look at a sample to-do list. there's five things on this list. Number one, drop package off at post office. Number two, Return mortgage papers to lender. Number three, take Ben to vet. Number four, edit website copy for upcoming event. Number five, play piano. Now this may or may not be my to-do list and and yours may be similar, and I'm referring to the order. So I've got playing the piano last. We tell ourselves we need to get all the grown-up tasks done first. Kids, job, house, feeding the family, pets, why didn't the sprinklers turn on last night? Then last on that list, usually is us. So here's my hard ask of you recovery elevator. Please make a point to do something every day that you find joyful. And here's the important part. Do it first. You need to put yourself first on this journey. So do it first before all the other stuff that has the potential to zap all their creative energy out of you. About three months ago, I started taking piano lessons. I went from chopsticks to now I can play scientists and clocks on the piano by Coldplay. I can't sing them yet because that's some major rubbing your tummy and patting your head at the same time type shit, but I'm working on it. At first I would practice piano at the end of the day when my mind was sometimes ready for a nap and the mind at that time is usually in high beta brain waves, which means it's borderline stressed. So this strategy worked for some days but other days i had to force it and it wasn't enjoyable so then i flipped the to-do list i started playing the piano first thing in the morning before all the adulting took place and here's what i found when we do something we enjoy there's a natural creative energy that arises that makes things tolerable even pleasant and here's the important part this energy this higher level of consciousness will then overlap into the next task or project that you employ. I quickly found I was more effective at all remaining tasks for the day and they all became more joyful, even dropping the package off at the post office. So I try to practice the piano or music every single morning. This flip has had a major impact on the quality of my life. Now let's tie this into sobriety or ditching the booze. When we are doing something we enjoy, we enter into a flow state where time and our problems seem to disappear. Flow states, or when we are fully immersed in a task, are healthy because we aren't thinking about how the F we're going to quit drinking. Another way to say this is the neural connections that fortify an addiction begin to soften and then something, inevitably else, is strengthened. Now this could be gardening, reading, hiking, or whatever. Again, our mental energies aren't in the addiction or the story. And you're like, crap, oh, this guy's back with getting out of the story stuff again. Yep, get used to it. You're going to hear me saying it over and over because it's super important. And for the record, this will be the 245th time I've said you can't think yourself out of an addiction. Okay, so joy solo is great. For example, playing the violin. Good stuff. But if you have the option to play the violin with another violinist or a cellist, I previously thought that was celloist, but it's cellist, then that is awesome. And you guys know how most dogs are a nudge away from playing? Well, that's how human beings are as well. We're just living a life that's been filled with so much muck and noise that we have to make a point, an effort to get back to this natural state of living. We all know how to have fun. It's not like we're learning anything new. We're simply uncovering things, restoring our natural state. Now, some of you guys might be like, "Uh, Hey, Pablo, I recently quit drinking and I have not a clue what I like to do for fun anymore. Well, that's the work. You've probably heard myself and Odette on this podcast say you got to do the work. You got to find out again. And if your work, your homework assignment, your task after this episode is to find out what you like to do for fun, well, I can think of worse things for work to do. And remember, rule 22 at Recovery Elevator, that's the golden rule. Have fun, lighten up, and never take yourself too seriously. Okay, there's one more thing I want to cover, and I'm trembling with fear while I say this. On my way back from our Atlanta meetup, thank you, Alan, episode 267, for such an awesome weekend, I saw a bunch of large dudes in the security line at the airport. They were all wearing matching jackets and sweatpants, so I assumed they were part of a sports team that probably involves physical contact. On the crest of the jacket was the logo. I focused my eyes, and then I saw it. And I stopped dead in my tracks. It was as if I was frozen, almost unresponsive. And no, it wasn't a ferocious eagle, hawk, wolf, shark, or a bear. Oh no, it was something much worse, much deadlier. Something that would perhaps cause the other team to not even take the field. In fact, I can imagine players on the other team saying, my uncle died from that beast. Their mascot has destroyed my family and so forth. So what's the mascot you might be saying? Well, it was a martini glass. I ended up being in the security line with the professional Los Angeles rugby team, the Gil Teenies. And if you want to pick a mascot that leaves a devastating wake of wreckage on society, well, then they nailed it. Because my Google search of has an eagle or hawk ever killed a human being, that came up with nil. But alcohol, on the other hand. And that is going to conclude today's intro. So now let's hear from BetterHelp, and then we'll hear from Brett.
3: I want to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, BetterHelp. Mental health matters, and as we continue to live through this pandemic and slowly go back to resuming activities, such as going back to work or attending some social gatherings, it's important to have someone that can help us process all of our emotions and life stressors. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp provides a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. This platform is super easy to navigate. You can log into your account at any time and interact with your counselor by sending them a message. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly or video phone sessions. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. I highly encourage you to check it out. Visit www.betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join the over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. This podcast episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Recovery Elevator listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Brett to the show. Brett, welcome. How are you today? Hi, oh, Dad. I'm good. I'm so happy to be here with you. I am so happy that the day is finally here. I'd been waiting. So <laughs> thank you so much for saying yes and for being on the show with us. Of course, of course. And let's get right to it, Brett. When was the last time you had a drink?
1: My last drink was on January 2nd of 2020. How are you feeling? Good. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. I was I was thinking about that question because obviously I knew it was coming, and I couldn't tell you what it was or or anything like that. But it feels like a a very long time ago in a really good way.
3: I like hearing that, and we'll hear more a little bit about how that whole first year went for you. But let us know <laughs> a little bit about yourself, Brett. Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What do you do for a living? And what do you like to do for fun?
1: Sure. So I'm originally from Rhode Island, the smallest state, but I currently live in the Bay Area um, in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Uh, I work in tech consulting. I kind of fell into it right after college, and it's been about six years, which have just flown by. Uh, I'm 27. I'm not married, but I am in a relationship for fun. I really like to go to the farmer's market, especially since it's been warming up here in San Francisco. I, I take care of my many, many house plants. I just repotted a few earlier today. Uh, I love reading nonfiction books, hang out with my friends, trying new NA drinks. And yeah, I guess one thing for this year is I, I really hope to adopt a dog. I think this year is gonna be the year and, and I'm really excited about that.
3: Oh, that's exciting. And I love that you <laughs> have a lot of house plants that are your babies. We have two people in the recovery elevator team that are obsessed with plants. I love them, but I'm not the best at taking care of them. But uh, <laughs> we'll yeah. definitely, we'll definitely request a photo of all your plant babies so that we can share with the team and share on our Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I would love that. All right, Brandon. let us know your history with drinking. When did you start your relationship with alcohol? When did you realize alcohol wasn't serving your goals anymore? And what got you here?
1: Sure. So I had my first drink. I was like 12 or 13. I have two older sisters. I'm the youngest. And I was pre-gaming with my sister for her high school senior prom. I remember it was like pop-off like or something like disgusting and her and her friend were just kind of drinking this clear liquid like as they were doing their makeup and they seemed to kind of let loose and and get a little bit more relaxed and giggly and you know having an older sister you just kind of look up to them and want to be like them and so I guess I just like had a shot of it and I was like wow this is like so disgusting but my sister's so cool like now I'm kind of in with the the crowd so to speak and I don't really recall like that kind of flipping the switch for me I think it was when I was like 14 or 15 where alcohol started becoming like a social thing um a lot of kids in my grade at school had older siblings and so I think that kind of had to do with us being exposed at a younger age. I went to a really small like private Quaker school so like 60 kids a class really small and peer pressure was definitely a big thing so I just remember kind of that becoming a a thing maybe in like eighth grade And I would say after alcohol became kind of a staple at all these hangouts and and parties and stuff on the weekends, that I was never really a normal drinker, like looking back on it. But I always thought that everyone was getting to the same place as I was, like everyone was blacking out. Like I didn't realize that you could drink without blacking out until Mm -hmm. maybe I was like 20 or 21. So that was kind of just like my life, middle school, high school. Like I would have to call my mom, like bless her soul to like, come pick me up from friends' houses. Cause I was just throwing up like in their basement. It was rough. Um, there were moments where my parents would, you know, ask me to, or like ground me and then tell me to write like essays on alcohol like how how is it made like what is the history behind it as as if kind of that education would would scare me away or something but but it never did yeah
3: Yeah. I want to I want to just interrupt you for a second like when you were I know you giggled a little bit when you said well I didn't know you could just drink without blacking out I mean to your defense when you start doing anything in life that's your normal that's your experience and Mm -hmm you do think that's the way that it is for everyone. So it was very common or natural for you to think that way when you were in it. Did you in, in these attempts of your parents to have you know a little bit more about alcohol and what it was possibly doing? Was there any like feelings talk? Or was it just like, alcohol is bad? It's not good for you. Here's why? I can imagine Mm -hmm. myself maybe struggling with some guilt or shame if my parents would have to kind of help me and then and then try to guide me in the right direction. Like, where was your heart with all of this in your emotional state?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think I think for me, I mean, one of the biggest things I think that kept me drinking for as long as I did is like that terrible cycle of shame. Right. That you have with alcohol or any drug is like I I do the thing, I drink. I do something stupid. I embarrass myself. Oh my god, I can't face myself. Shameful. You end up drinking again because you just can't deal with your feelings. And I think for me, I was I was like going through a lot as a kid, kind of on my own and with my own brain. I'm now diagnosed bipolar too, just to jump around. But I was experiencing all of those symptoms when I was younger, and just like didn't know what to do with them. So I think I was like very torn kind of between like being really scared and kind of having this inkling feeling like, is there something wrong with me that I'm feeling these emotions? Like, is there something, I don't know, just this, this innate feeling of like, there's something wrong with me, but I don't know what. And then also feeling kind of like, like that rebellious, like screw my parents. Like, I'm not going to listen to them. Like, I'm just going to go wild and do what I want. And also kind of the, the fighting feelings between those two, like alone is a lot. So I guess to answer your question shortly, a lot of feeling.
3: Yeah, totally. And thank you so much for sharing about your bipolar diagnosis. I know you share about that openly on your Instagram and I learn so much from you and from the information that you bring to us, because just like there's all of this shame and stigma, and there are all of these myths around alcohol, it is the same for other mental health disorders like bipolar. Mm -hmm. So I'll be curious to hear how as your relationship with alcohol evolved, how this kind of correlated and, you know, was part of that same cycle. But, you know, emotional regulation is something that I feel like we don't learn early enough and Mm -hmm. i was just talking to a friend over lunch yesterday and and he was telling me you know i had all these good feelings and yada yada but whenever the quote-unquote bad feelings came i had no idea what to label them what to do with them how to put them away how to process them so Mm -hmm. you know it, it it almost is part of this shame like not having the emotional intelligence to understand the full scope of emotions adds on Mm -hmm. to the shame, because I feel like for many of us, just from hearing all of these stories, it's like, these bad feelings, I'm not supposed to have them instead of I'm supposed to have them, I'm just supposed to learn how to live with them. It's like, why am I having this, you know, and it and then it becomes part of that shame cycle. So totally, yeah, it's crazy. And what happened after high school? Yeah, so (laughs) after high
1: school, I, well, I had this whole idea when I when I graduated high school or, or or I guess junior year of high school, because that's when you're applying to college of like, Oh my God, I'm just going to get out of here. Like the farthest away from Rhode Island that I can, and that's going to fix everything. So like I had my first inklings of a geographic, I now know. And (laughs) um, I decided I applied to like Hawaii Pacific university. Like I really just wanted to, to get out, but I ended up at Loyola uh, in Baltimore, Maryland. And I chose Loyola, not because I think I really liked it, because I did like a college tour kind of with my sister the summer before, but because no one from my high school was going there. And I was like, I just like need to get away from these people. So I went to Loyola for a year And it was like a total party school and I was the cool girl with the fake ID and I would go like every other day and get a ton of like those plastic jug bottles of vodka and (laughs) I was like so gross and, but everyone loved me. And like, I, I mean, I had, I guess, I guess I had fun. I mean, I can't remember a lot of it, but I had good friends and nothing bad ever happened. And I I also though had like a 4.0 GPA while like just running amok, being drunk all the time. So there was some part of me, I think that was inkling for more or something different. And I ended up transferring to Northeastern University in Boston and like same kind of deal at Northeastern. I was drinking a lot. I, I found a good group of friends and by good, I mean also, people who drink a lot, mm-hmm. um, and it was there my my sophomore fall. So basically, I mean, it's like freshman fall because I'm brand new at this the school. I had what I now think is like my first real depressive episode, and I didn't know what was going on. I remember calling my mom and just like having a total panic attack and I couldn't stop crying. Like I couldn't even breathe. And, and then I went to the, I went to the school, like psychiatrist and I explained everything to her. And she said, Oh, I, I think you had bipolar too. <laughs> and I looked at her and I know, I'm not going to drop too many F-bombs, but I was like, I'm not fucking crazy. Like oh my I don't have bipolar. Like, you're a joke. And we ended up like negotiating my diagnosis (laughs) to just depression, which it just baffles me to this day. And yeah, kind of like college, I tried managing my ups and downs of bipolar, like with alcohol and cocaine. There were some really rough moments and like people I really hurt. And to this day, like I still need to make amends to, but I somehow
3: graduated can you walk us yeah. through what a, an episode of you going through a bipolar chapter looks like in terms of symptoms, what it is, what it isn't, just so that we do have a better understanding? Because if you were able to kind of simmer down the diagnosis to depression, I, mm-hmm. I'm assuming the audience who is listening is thinking it probably looks like lows, but what, what is a cycle of bipolar and what does it look like in terms of your journey?
1: Yeah. And I think that's a great question. I want to preface it with like, bipolar is really difficult to diagnose Mm -hmm. for tons of different reasons. Like for me, I think a lot of it had to do with my like, alcohol and cocaine use. Like, you know, you kind of have alcohol, alcohol, the depressant, like cocaine, the manic, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. I'm kind of taking drugs that would represent those two ends to a degree and bipolar can present like very differently in different people. But for me, I like mostly did present as depressed, Um, like major depressive disorder would be the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. For me, that was feeling like super exhausted and tired, not being able to really get out of bed, even if I had to pee, like, I would much rather just like roll over and like pee in a cup right next to my bed, than walk the 10 feet to my, um, to my bathroom. Like it's just, it takes all the energy out of you. My, like all my muscles would be sore. Like I just ran a marathon, um, or what I think would feel like (laughs) that. I've never done it. And lot for me, like lots and lots of tears, like just crying for no reason. Um, and I just couldn't stop. And probably like two to three days into that would come like the suicidal ideation and like, I guess what you could say, like the really scary thoughts. And I would really like hyper focus on that. and like i'm I'm worthless. Nobody wants me here. and and just circle and circle and kind of that drain. I'm
3: assuming the booze only makes it way worse.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I would just say like the booze just turned the dial like way up. Um, Mm. It also like in looking back, I think definitely like made my episodes longer because you're just like digging yourself deeper and deeper into that depressive hole by pouring a depressive drug like onto it. And for me, I did present like little, I guess, like blips of hypomania, Mm -hmm. which would be kind of like high bursts of energy, like feeling on top of the world, talking really fast, not sleeping. I also presented in like my shopping tendencies, like I would go and buy one pair of shoes and love them have to go back by the same pair of shoes in all the different colors. Like I have to have it all and I have to have it right now. And it's like sense of urgency. But I think, yeah, that, that woman who diagnosed me in college, like saw those blips. And I think for me, like I just had such a different understanding of what bipolar was. And I thought it was just like this crazy person who like couldn't function in the world. And so yeah, to me at the time, I just, I was just like, you, you can't be right. Like I'm not a crazy person.
3: A hundred percent. It was already hard enough for people to grasp (laughs) the fact that they may have a problem with alcohol, let alone, I I can't imagine Uh, like the denial and, and how defeating it probably felt in the moment. And now that you've grown so much, I, I, I'm going to forward real quick and then I'm going to make us go back. But recently I saw you share something about how you know, having your diagnosis as being so freeing. (laughs) So it comes with an understanding of things and with a trajectory in between. But it's crazy how, you know, at one point, it's like, sometimes we're not ready until we're ready. And and there's no better example than than that. So anyway, I interrupted you. I'm sorry, (laughs)
1: Britt. No, don't be sorry at all. No, I love this conversation. And I, and I, I think, yeah, like it was a total process for me like someone told me when I was 20 or 21 in that like college psychiatrist office that I had bipolar too and I like wasn't ready to hear it I also was just like oh my god like I can't do anything right like I can't drink right I can't function right apparently my brain isn't right like Jesus <laughs> like you know and you mm-hmm. feel so much shame and guilt and like I just was not in the headspace to hear something like that. And then yeah, fast forward to 15 months ago when I was in a dual diagnosis rehab, and they said that and it was like, it was a permission for me to just like let go.
3: How did you end up in that yeah. rehab? Did you take yourself or did someone else come up and say, Hey, Brett, we got to We got to do something about this.
1: Yeah. So I had, I had a an awful tendency when I was drinking, um, and self harming that I would text my family members, like specifically my parents and my sisters, mm-hmm. basically just like blaming them for everything that they don't care about me that they don't love me. Like you name it, I've, I've probably said it. And I did that like, many times um, over the past few years. And there was something about the night that I messaged them, I think it was January 1st or January 2nd I can't remember of 2020 and somehow like that was the straw that broke the camel's back and usually what happened after these texts was just like I apologize and we all kind of just forget about it because in our Mm -hmm. family um talking about things is difficult but we're definitely getting better Mm -hmm. um and I think I just like scared the shit out of my parents enough that my mom like Bought me a plane ticket home. She called me. She said, do you want me to come out and get you? Like, are you going to get on the plane? And I was just like, I was in a bender at the time. So like, I barely remember this, but I was like, yeah, whatever. Like I'll get on the plane. And while I was kind of getting myself together, I guess, and going to the airport and everything, she was calling like a lot of her friends that worked in the medical field, kind of anyone she could think of. And she tracked Like this rehab down for me. It's like a dual diagnosis rehab. And so she had like talked with all of the intake people before I even landed. And then I was going through like severe withdrawals and everything. But a few days after I got home, I had to call the rehab and like talk with them, of course, because I have to be like a consenting adult. And I called them and we talked about expectations and kind of the rules. And like two days later, we were driving to the middle of nowhere in Massachusetts to drop me off at this rehab. And that's kind of how it worked.
3: Were you freaking out?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, I think the most terrifying part of all of that, kind of like getting out of my bender, like I got to the airport for my flight 12 hours early because I just had no understanding of time. Like I was just sitting in the airport from like 8 p.m. to 11 PM. I was doing cocaine, like just in the airport lobby area. Like, what? I just my brain was not, not there. And then I was going through withdrawals the whole plane ride home. So I thought I was going to die. I was like in the bathroom literally the whole time. The flight attendants were like, "What is going on?" But I didn't know I was going through withdrawals because I didn't know what that was. Totally. And, and then yeah. So from there, like my parents picked me up from the airport and. I literally thought I was going to die, and they took me to the ER. And I would say, like, being so out of control of my own body when I had used alcohol as a way to control things, like, that was the scariest part. It was like, this substance has turned on me. And, like, that scared me the most. I would say, like, calling the rehab and talking to that woman who, She just seemed to like, get it. Like, I just felt accepted even on the phone with her. And I don't know, like, I felt this overwhelming sense of calm, honestly, like when we were driving there. And once I got like, you know, set up in my room, it was like, well, you know, cats out of the bag, like, let's just try to work on this. And that was liberating to a degree.
3: Yeah. And it's so funny and ironic how you know, when we are not, even for people who are on the much acceptable spectrum, you know, people that are, maybe I have a problem, maybe I don't, people who are tiptoeing around the idea, it's still a control issue. You still feel like when you are using the substances, you are in control. And the moment that's revoked from you, you are like, what? Like, I don't even know (laughs) what normal feels like, what my body needs. And it's, Mm -hmm. It's so weird how it just, yeah, because it goes. It's like you're living in this opposite world to where now, after some time in sobriety, you're like, oh, this is how it's supposed to be. This is actually being in healthy control. And it's just flipped the switch for so long. And then it's very scary making that transition for sure. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's horrifying. And I think that was one of the most,
1: like, one of the wildest realizations that I had in sobriety was like the life that I have now and have built for myself in only 15 months is so much closer to like the life. Like, it's just the life that I wanted and the life that I was trying to get through drinking and partying. And like, you know, I wanted validation. I wanted acceptance and I wanted all these things. And, you know, alcohol was never going to get me there. And that, I mean, I was drinking and using for like 15 years and in 15 months (laughs) it's like whoa I've kind of like got what I've always wanted and how incredible and wild and weird is that
3: yeah it's pretty crazy how long were you in there for
1: uh only two weeks and honestly my gosh Odette like if I could just go back for a little vacay like (laughs)
3: I would
1: (laughs) like the food there was so good. The people there, like the people who work there are so incredibly like talented and patient. And I know that people have like many rehab experiences and obviously all of them are valid, but like that place hands down saved my life. And I enjoyed like most parts of it. Like even when I was, you know, sobbing, with my therapist, like that was, that felt good. Like it, it just was the right place to be and insurance would only cover two weeks. So
3: <laughs> yeah, there is a, it, it's a pain in the butt, you know, the whole insurance process and how yeah. not accessible this e- is for a lot of people that need it. I remember I was in mine, uh, the one yeah. that I went to, I was there for 30 days and I also had a great experience and I would have liked a little bit more time because I mean, I've talked about this before but even though it's hard and like you said you're sobbing you're processing all of these things it's still acting as a safe container and you are in this environment that you know there's probably not another time where you can only be focusing on yourself with people all around you supporting you or at least attempting to support you you know it's such a privileged experience and it's really scary getting out of there like because when you come out I I I was like, "What? wait, I'm going to leave this bubble and then I'm just going to go back. And the expectation that you've been healed, which is a whole other conversation, mm-hmm. like the expectation of like, well, you went there and now you should be good. Like, that's what was scary to me that like, crap, when yeah. I leave, it's like everything is actually going to start when I leave. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I think that is, I guess, two thoughts. Like the first one is I had a similar realization, like, like why? Like, why does it have to get so bad for me to like be able to check into some place where, like, I can put my life on hold? Like, mm-hmm. it's just about me and like just about figuring out these like kind of very fundamental things. And I was just like, oh, I mean, I'm glad that I got to that point because then I got to be there. But I think that realization has really stuck with me and has prompted me and motivated me to really check in with myself the way I did in rehab every day, because it's so important. And like, I wish that people, I don't know, like, I wish if you just thought maybe you had a problem with alcohol, like you could get two weeks off immediately, like fully paid to like figure yourself out because it just, I don't know, it just sucks that people have to get so low to get that help. And also knowing that like so many people can't get that help or like, it's not accessible. And I don't know, that's just, yeah. Something and, and that really stuck with me.
3: It's a great exercise for the ego too. I remember hearing from my therapist, you know, you think she didn't mean to offend me. And it's the type of relationship that we have, but she would say, you know, you think that you are in charge of everything. And that if you were to mm-hmm. drop off the earth on one day, things would fall apart. Well, surprise, surprise, you know, (laughs) things keep moving when you're not around. And I feel like for a lot of people, the idea of checking into rehab or I don't know, taking even a therapy session for an hour of their day seems like I can't afford to do that because I'm technically supposed to be doing this and I'm in charge of all of this other stuff. And Mm -hmm. for me, it's been a huge exercise in my own like ego and checking that ego of like, I'm not in charge. Someone else could do what I think that only I can do. And Mm -hmm. the world keeps turning, you know, it's not about me. Yep, the world does keep turning. I had a client,
1: maybe a few years ago, and and someone was like, Oh, I don't know if I can take, you know, this week off, because we have this presentation or whatever. And my client just looked at my coworker, and she was just like, babies aren't dying, like take the day off. Like, and she just said it like, so bluntly. And I don't know, it's always stuck with me. That woman, she was like, I don't know. She was just like so loud and funny and fun. And she just snapped right back and, you, and was like, just do it. Like, and she said that in a nice way, but it was it was basically the same thing that you're saying. It's just the world goes on when you're not there. And, you know, Nothing that bad is going to happen if you take time for you. So I think it's also like we're just scared to prioritize ourselves too. And like that's a big, big part of it.
3: That's a huge part of it. And we're also like almost, I think the narratives are changing a little bit, but it's not that we're scared, but we're also, you know, are told depending mm-hmm. on your culture and your upbringing that you are supposed to put other people first. But I've been really optimistic seeing that narrative change a little bit and, and just having this societal understanding of, you know, you need to take care of yourself first, which I'm, I like, I'm an optimist. So I feel like mm-hmm. the dial is moving in the right direction. <laughs> yes, for sure. How was leaving Brett, speaking of that, how was leaving? How was your life after going to treatment? And how was that? first 30 to 60 days. I mean, I'm sure you were yeah. also navigating not just being sober, but I don't know what type of medication you're under with bipolar. Like how was life after treatment?
1: Yeah, so I I feel really lucky. So, after treatment, I just went back home to my parents' house and I stayed with them I think for like a month and a half and I also didn't go back to work until maybe the last two weeks that I was home. So I still gave myself time to like just exist kind of and and figure out even what that meant or what that looked like. So I kind of, I don't know, I felt like in this very safe, like bubbled space and it was good. I mean, I tried out like AA meetings. I tried out smart recovery meetings. This was pre-pandemic, so I could like do that stuff and go to these places. And then in my last two weeks, I went back to work, but only part time to try to just like gauge how that would be. And then I flew back to San Francisco. And I think that was like the really horrifying moment of like, or like, I'm going to be leaving my parents. And, you know, I, I flew back and I walked into my bedroom and you know, it was just in shambles. Like, I mean, not that my roommates like should clean up after me after I like fly back for rehab. But like, there was like, a bottle of Maker's Mark just like still open, like mm-hmm. on my carpet and like bottles of wine. And just like the mess that I had left that I didn't even realize because I was just like in a blackout when I left um, a few months earlier. And, and that was hard, but it wasn't triggering. And I think, I feel very lucky for that. And I don't know. I think I just I took it slow or i I tried to take it slow. I found a therapist out here. I found a like great psychiatrist out here. and i and then the pandemic hit. <laughs> and so I think i I went to one a meeting in person before lockdown started. And then I just turned to Instagram and I found. Carla, who runs Sober IRL, and like that, that just did it for me. I think that really kickstarted like my desire to stay sober. If I didn't have that, and there was a pandemic, like who I don't even really want to think about like what would have happened. And then as far as my like medications, I got really lucky at rehab. I mean, with the really experienced people that were there, like they just mixed up a cocktail for me and it worked. And so I had like kind of just being really tired and groggy, but that was only in rehab. Like all of my meds and doses, dosages and everything were figured out before I left. So like that was incredible. And I think my medication journey is was like a wildly short one. And I feel like extremely grateful for that because I know how daunting and terrible that experience can be. And yeah, I just feel very lucky that I didn't have to go through that.
3: What tools specific to quitting drinking were serving you there at the beginning? Were you going to meetings other than your therapist, which I want to prescribe to the world, but I also know some people it doesn't work or it's not an option. What other things were working for you in terms of staying sober and not drinking?
1: I think in the beginning, like the motivation a big motivator was how awful my withdrawals were. Like that was really, really frightening to me. And so I know it's kind of like messed up, but like fear motivated me kind of in the beginning. And then as I got more time and I kind of went to meetings, like AA meetings were super helpful, kind of always said I wasn't going to be an aa -er because those people are crazy, Um, but (laughs) I'm one of them. And and I've kind of found my crew there. Also, podcasts. I mean, your podcast, uh, Paul's podcast, Recovery Elevator has just been, yeah, a staple since day one. Recovery Happy Hour is another one that I love. I just shout out to Trisha. Tisha. I love her. Yeah, <laughs> Trisha's the best. So those are kind of the two podcasts. And then reading book. I read this Naked Mind, but not in the beginning. I read it when I was about a year sober, which I know a lot of people say like that was kind of the game changer for them in deciding to to try not drinking i did that i read like the four agreements which i had read a lot before but i was always like drunk when i read it so it was different to read it sober <laughs> um and and the instagram community i mean really like i i remember messaging carla being like hi like i'm newly sober you know i'm like so awkward And she's just like, oh my God, let's get coffee. Like, let's do this. And, you know, kind of just putting yourself out there just a little and like people just like take you up like they put you under their wings. And, you know, then a year later, it's like, I'm going to Carla's wedding. Like we're really good friends. And that community I think is the most important whether you find that through AA, whether you find it through Instagram, which I would never even like think would happen
3: just find your people. And yeah. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I mean, and I love Carla too. such good. Yeah, such good peeps, good vibes. Latina como yo. Plus, she knows how to dance, man. She is. I know. She's awesome. She's <laughs> been on the show too. But what would Brett do when you initially would get cravings? Because I think there's like different pieces to this success Mm -hmm. story that even relapse is part of success stories in my opinions, but what the community piece I think is a strong component. And then the almost like the self-regulating, what tools help you, even though you have friends rooting for you, friends who get you when Mm -hmm. shit hit the fan and you would get a complete craving or something so uncomfortable that you just wanted to tap out for relief. What are things that work for you?
1: Yeah, I feel really grateful. I mean, besides like when I was going through withdrawals, I've never really experienced like a, a physical craving, awesome. which I know people talk about and like, who props to people that get through those. Yeah, I couldn't imagine. But for me, it was really just like these thoughts. And I still have them all the time. But like, just this itchiness of like not being comfortable with myself or like where I'm at, or like what I'm doing. And so for me, a trick that I learned in rehab is like just playing the tape forward. It's like, oh, like I really want a drink right now. I just want to get out of my head. And it's like, okay, well, it's not going to be one drink. Like, so you're going to have this drink, then you're going to have to go to the store, you're going to buy more, then you're going to hit up your Coke dealer, then you're probably going to self harm, then you're probably going to end up in the hospital, and they're Mm -hmm. going to put you on a 5150 hold and like, boom, (laughs) you know, and okay, now I don't think that I really want that drink. So that's, that's kind of my go-to I also like leverage my sponsor I have a sponsor she's great uh exercise is great like when I get in my own head and I feel really itchy like my heart starts to pound and I learned this in like dbt therapy um I think it's part of like the tip exercises Mm -hmm. um if your heart's really racing because of anxiety like start doing a strenuous physical activity that like actually gets your like would actually get your heart running that fast and I don't know the details of how it works but it works for me and then water I think like I I take a bath I have a huge bathtub which I just like love or I just sit in the shower and I cry (laughs) and yeah you know it sounds
3: crying is healing
1: but It is. I mean, and I just feel better or just like even saying out loud if no one's around like, oh my God, I just really want to fucking drink. And you just say that and the world doesn't end, right? Like they're just your thoughts and just getting them out of your head, whether that's saying it to yourself, journaling, whatever, like once it's out of you, it has less power, I think.
3: I love it, yeah, I mean, it's kind of back to what we were saying at the beginning now, I cry all the I always cried before I got sober, and now that and then I became a mom and I cried even more, and now that I'm sober and a <laughs> mom, I like just cry almost every time. day <laughs> all the time, but i just I think yeah. that i just I feel like my body's just releasing some stuff that needs to be let go of, and I kind of feel the same way when i like I get a bad cold or something, you know, I'm always trying to be like something's leaving the system, whatever shape it may be. I'll take it. Yes, totally.
1: You know, it's all about just getting it out. Like all of those feelings, they hold this energy in your body, you know, and whatever, which way you, you figure it out, it's just good to get it out.
3: What's your favorite non-alcoholic beverage, Brett? I know you said you like to try oh, new things. I know this is so hard.
1: I would say that my current favorite is, um, the McKellar raspberry limbo. It's like a raspberry sour. It's super good.
3: So I don't think I've ever tried it. Yeah. It's,
1: um, I found it through Josh. Um, Josh, the non-alcoholic is his handle, but he just opened ocean beach cafe in the Richmond in San Francisco. And his goal is to, um, have like the largest any beer collection in the world how cool well on his way I know it's so great and so I just go there and you know like he just has like cases and cases of all these cool beers and drinks that I've never seen before but this McKellar one is oh my god it's so good and he only had a limited amount (laughs) so I had to get like cut off they were like right you can't buy more than three because other people like need to be able to try
3: this (laughs) kind of like COVID and the toilet paper (laughs) (laughs) I know (laughs) oh well that's awesome I know that every time on your Instagram I see a new thing I'm like I gotta try that and I, I I love when talking about this encouraging people to even ask a lot of people say well there's nothing around me and I found and my husband's sober now too that in asking people, asking local liquor stores, oh, have you heard of this? Could you carry it? A lot of the times Mm -hmm. the answer is yes. You know, We just really do try to have to be an advocate for ourselves because now there's a couple of liquor stores around us that carry a lot of any beverages that we've requested. I don't know if they sell it or not, or if it'll be long-term or not, but speaking up goes a long way.
1: Yeah. I think that's so awesome. I saw your post on Instagram the other day with your husband, like walking out of the liquor store with all the N.A. options. And I was like, ah, oh, that's so amazing.
3: Well, and the cool thing is that the one that is closest to us is Lagunitas and they make beer as well. But a lot of the times uh, brands that only make N.A. beer, that's a different story. But if it's a brand that already makes alcoholic beer, all the people at the liquor store have to do is ask for the product because they're already connected to the vendor that carries the brand.
1: Oh, yeah, that's such a good point.
3: Yeah, so that that's another little hack. But yeah, I mean, I feel like NA beverage options are just growing by the day. And it's so exciting to be able to trial of them and to just see this movement grow.
1: It is and to just feel like included, you know, like I went out to dinner with a friend earlier this week, and I just looked at the drink drinks menu. like, oh, you know, maybe they'll have like a fun soda or something. And they had like four fully non alcoholic like cocktails, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Yes, and oh my god, it was awesome. Like they had the same amount of NA options as they had alcohol options on that menu, and it just yeah made
3: made my night.
1: It was really awesome, and I definitely see kind of the world moving in that direction and I am all for it.
3: Yeah, it's happening. Brett, and we've reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions in 30 ah, seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? I'm ready. If you could talk to younger Brett or day one Brett, what would you say? Oh, I'm
1: proud of you or like it's going to be okay. I think I had this just sense of dread all the time and And it really weighed me down. So I think I would go with something like that.
3: What's a light bulb moment you've had during this journey? That sleep is actually restful. It is wild. (laughs) What's an unexpected perk of this journey? More money, more disposable income. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. What's your favorite ice cream flavor?
1: Uh, The Tonight Dough, Ben and Jerry's.
3: I feel like I need to get Ben and Jerry's to sponsor us. Ah, oh, let's do it. I'm a try. I'm a try. <laughs> <laughs> what parting piece of guidance can you give listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? I
1: think like a big reason why I kept going and drinking for so long was because I just like had so many negative feelings about myself and I didn't think that I deserved any better than, than what I was giving to myself, which wasn't very much. And I think like in sobriety that just like lifted for me, like before I even did anything and did any work, like I felt more like I was worth it. And I think it's like really scary to realize that, but super empowering. I would say like, just do it. You know, the alcohol isn't going anywhere, which I know people say a lot, but it's seriously true
3: and you can do it and before we depart give listeners your own you may have to say adiós to booze if line you may have to say
1: adiós to booze if you've gotten yourself into so much debt on your so much debt that you have to venmo request from your credit card into your venmo account and then transfer that into your venmo debit account to then get money out to buy alcohol
3: I'm so glad you're sober now, Brett.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how I figured that out. But once I did, oof, it was bad.
3: Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate you, Brett. And I can't wait to share this with everyone. Awesome. Thank you so much, Adette. Have a good weekend. Great. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye. bye. Very well, Team RE. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to share something that I heard during the latest Gabor Mate documentary called The Wisdom of Trauma. This documentary came out a couple of weeks ago, and it addresses addiction. And there's a part in the film where Gabor Mate says that we continue to treat people that struggle with addiction super poorly. We judge them. We don't try to understand them. I mean, I'm talking about as a society, right? And he also said something along the lines of this. If you think about it, addiction is not a problem. Addiction is the solution to a problem. The problem being our trauma, our suppressed emotions, our unhealed pain. Our smart brains resort to alcohol, not with the intent of destroying us, but with the intent of saving us from all of this pain. Interesting, right? One of the reasons why I love being part of Recovery Elevator is that I feel seen and understood. I'm accepted as a human and I'm not judged due to my past behaviors. We're a part of a solution here. We see you and we seek to understand you. Together, we're creating a solution. Whether you have little T trauma or big T trauma, it is all valid and we are here for you. Remember that you're not alone, and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, it all starts from the inside out. I love you guys.
2: How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you're having at this moment. In the seeing of who you are not, the reality of who you are, Emerges by itself, life isn't as serious as my mind makes it out to be. Being must be felt, built. it can't be thought. About. Your inner purpose is to awaken. time ago when humanity, instead of using thought, became possessed by thought. The word I embodies the greatest error and the deepest truth, depending on how it is used. In normal everyday usage, I embodies the primordial error, the misperception of who you are
0: illusory sense of identity. This is the ego.